a note to the hearer. Those who give careful reading to studies in the scriptures will discover the studies differ in several respects from many other religious periodicals. There is little in this publication that will appeal to the popular reader. If this magazine be read as a newspaper is read, little profit to the soul will be obtained. What we solicit from our subscribers is this. First, that before taking up any article herein, the reader will lift up his or her heart to God and earnestly ask Him for a spirit of discernment to recognize His truth and an open heart to receive it. Second, that to this end, the reader will study each article with an open Bible before him, turning to each passage quoted to see whether or not the writer proves what he says by a thus saith the Lord. And a third, that he reads slowly, critically and thoughtfully what is presented in these pages. God has said in his word, He that believeth shall not make haste. Isaiah 28.16 And if ever there was a time when his children needed to give special heed to this admonition, it is now. The children of God are infected with the spirit of the world, the mad rush which characterizes everything around us, the awful hustle and bustle of the ungodly as they rush headlong to eternal death, has affected the members of the household of faith, and few, if any of us, are free from it. One of our most urgent needs is to be delivered from this feverish spirit, for it is rapidly sapping the spiritual vitality of many of God's people. The irreverent speed at which the Holy Scriptures are read in the average pulpit, the rate at which sacred songs are commonly sung, the unholy manner in which many rush into the presence of the Most High God and gabble off the first words that come to their lips are so many examples of this infection. And alas, the same Spirit possesses most of us when we read the Word of God and expositions of that Word. We earnestly ask our readers to make a prayerful study of the Word's Stand, sit, wait, tarry, as they are found in Holy Writ. The title of this magazine implies that it is designed not for lazy people or for those who are so busily occupied with the things of this world that they have no time, in reality no heart, for the things of God. No, it is published for the benefit of those who are or who wish to become students of Scripture. The articles herein call for study, thoughtful perusal, prolonged meditation. Finally, let not this magazine become a substitute for your own daily study of God's Word. Rather, let it be an incentive for further search on your part to discover the priceless treasures hidden therein. This is from the life of Arthur W. Pink by I. H. Murray, pages 23 and 24.
Turning now to May 1932, Studies in the Scriptures. Search the Scriptures, John 5.39. Editor, Arthur W. Pink, 1886-1952. The seven studies in the contents are The Kingly Office of Christ, The Epistle to the Hebrews, The Life of David, the poor of the flock, saving faith, receiving Christ, and prayer. Study number one, the kingly office of Christ. Christ is king in a twofold sense. First, as he is God. Second, as he is God-man-mediator. As God, He is King by nature. As Mediator, He is so by office. As the second person in the Trinity, Christ is overall God-blessed forever. Romans 9.5 Being the Creator, He has the right of dominion over all His creatures. But the Lord is the true God, he is the living God and an everlasting King. Jeremiah 10.10 10. All that God is essentially, Christ is too. As mediator, His kingdom is limited and special, concerning only the elect of God and others as they may have to do with them. And therefore, in this relation, Christ is called the King of Saints, Revelation 15, 3. For they bow to His scepter and delight in His rule. That Christ is King appears first from the Father's designation and ordination of Him to this office. Yet have I set my King upon my holy hill of Zion. Psalm 2, 6. The primary reference in this is to the setting up of Christ, Proverbs 8.23, in God's eternal purpose over His church. Note the, I will declare the decree in Psalm 2.7. God calls Him my King because of His choosing Him. As God appointed Christ to be a King, so he also appointed a kingdom to him. This was observed by Christ. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me. Luke twenty-two Second, it appears from the types and shadows which prefigured Christ in his kingly office. John Gill said, Melchizedek was a type of him, not only in his priestly office, but in his kingly office, both offices meeting in him as they do in Christ, who is a priest upon his throne. From his quality as a king, he had his name Melchizedek, meaning king of righteousness, and such an one is Christ who reigns in righteousness, and from the place of his government, 
king of Salem, that is, king of peace, agreeable to which one of Christ's titles is prince of peace, Isaiah 9, 6. David was an eminent type of Christ in his kingly office, for his wisdom and military skill, his courage and valor, his wars and victories, and the equity and justice of his government. Hence, Christ, his antitype, is often, with respect to the Jews in the latter days, called David their king. Jeremiah 39, Ezekiel 33, 23, 37, 3 to 24, and Hosea 3, 5. Solomon also was a type of Christ as king. Hence Christ, in the Song of Solomon, is called Solomon. Chapter 3, verses 7, 9, 11. Chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. Because of his great wisdom, his immense riches, the largeness and peaceableness of his kingdom. Unquote. Third, it appears from the prophecies concerning him in this connection. And the first of all, it was said that the woman's seed should bruise the serpent's head, that is, destroy the devil and all his works. 1 John 3.8 That is an act of Christ's kingly power and is expressive of him as a victorious prince and triumphant conqueror over all believers and his people's enemies. Balaam foretold, There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Numbers 24.17 Isaiah announced, The government shall be upon his shoulder. Chapter 9, verse 6 Jeremiah affirmed, The days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper. Chapter 23, verse 5. Daniel owned him as Messiah the Prince. Chapter 9, verse 25. Zechariah declared, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just and having salvation. Chapter 9, verse 9. We shall now proceed to show that the purpose of God has been accomplished, the types realized, and the prophecies fulfilled, that Christ is King in truth and in deed. First, He was so before His incarnation during the Old Testament dispensation. He was King over the people of Israel, not as a body politic, but as a church. Acts 7.38 he it was from whose right hand went the fiery law when he spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. He was the angel that went before them to guide and direct, to rule and govern them, whose voice they were to obey. Exodus 23, 20 and 21. He it was who appeared to Joshua with drawn sword in his hand to be the captain of the Lord's host, fight their battles for them and settle them in the land of Canaan. 
Joshua 5. He it was who said to Samuel, They have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. 1 Samuel 8, 7. Christ was king in the days of his humiliation. He was born king of the Jews, Matthew 2, 2. Nathanael made the following noble confession of faith concerning him. Thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. John 1.49 When he entered Jerusalem in a very public manner, he was greeted with, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord. Luke 19.38 He displayed his kingly power by commanding the elements, rebuking disease, expelling demons, all of which were subject to his imperial will. He exercised his kingly prerogative by displaying his legislative authority. I say unto you, Matthew 5, before he left this earth, he appointed ordinances and commissioned his ministers, Matthew 28. Upon his ascension to heaven, he was made both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36. That is, he was both publicly declared to be so and made more manifest as such. He was highly exalted and given a name above every name, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. 1 Peter 3.22 he then received the promise of the Holy Spirit and His gifts from the Father, which He plentifully bestowed upon His apostles, whom He sent forth into all the world, preaching His gospel with great success and causing them to triumph in Him in every place where they came, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Mark 16.20 As king, he made the arrows of his word sharp in the hearts of his enemies. The rod of his strength, the gospel, went forth out of Zion, making many willing to submit themselves unto him in the day of his power, whereby his kingdom was greatly strengthened in this world. There are those who emphatically deny that Christ has yet taken unto himself his kingly office, supposing he will not do so until the millennium. This is a serious error. Every mark of royalty is now to be found in Christ. Were kings anointed? In quotes, 1 Samuel 10.1 and 2 Samuel 2.4 So has Christ been anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, Hebrews 1.9. Were kings coronated at the time of their inauguration? So has Christ been crowned with glory and honor, Hebrews 2.7. Do kings sit on thrones when in state, 1 Kings 2.19 and 10.18? So Christ, is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Hebrews 8.1 
Do kings hold scepters in their hands as an ensign of their royalty? So Christ has a scepter of righteousness, Hebrews 1.8. Do kings appear in robes of majesty and state? So Christ is arrayed with majesty itself, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the breast with a golden girdle. His head and hairs white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes as a flame of fire. Revelation 1, 13 and 14. Do kings appoint ambassadors to represent their interests abroad? So the apostles announced, We are ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. Are kings possessed of authority and might to execute their wills? So Christ declared, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28:18. Even now Christ is Prince of the kings of the earth. Revelation 1, 5. Even now He has the key of David and uses it by opening doors which none can shut and shutting doors which none can open. Revelation 3.7 God has already exalted him with his right hand to be a prince and a savior. Acts 5.31 God has already given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the son of man. John 5.27 Ever since his ascension, he has been upholding all things by the word of his power. Hebrews 1.3 Today, he is the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. 1 Timothy 1.17 But in his times, he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. 1 Timothy 6.17 And what is the practical application which must be made to us individually of what has been before us? This, is Christ our King? Or is the language of our hearts We will not have this man to reign over us. Luke 19.14 All my hearers, this is no mere academical inquiry or one for dispensationalists to fight over. It is a question of vital moment and our real answer to it evidences whether we are really saved or no. If Christ be not my King, in a practical way, then no matter what my profession, I am a rebel against Him. Can I truly say His will is my law, His word my rule of life, His scepter the authority I own? Can I truthfully say other lords beside Thee have had dominion over me? Isaiah 26.13 But henceforth I own no other king but thee, no rule but thine. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him in your heart and life. 
Lord of all. Arthur Pink. Study number two. The Epistle to the Hebrews. The Apostate's Doom. Chapter 10, verses 28 to 31. The verses which are now to be before us complete the section begun at verse 26, the sum of which is the apostate's doom. They fall naturally into two parts, the one containing a description of their sin, the other a declaration of their punishment. For the purpose of solemn emphasis, each of these is repeated. In verse 26, the sin itself is mentioned. In the last clause of verse 26 and in verse 27, the punishment of it is affirmed. In verses 28 and 29, the apostle confirms the equity of the forenamed judgment by an argument drawn from the Mosaic law, under which he shows the terrible character of the sin which is here in view. In verses 30 and 31, he establishes the certainty of the punishment by an appeal to the character of God as revealed in His Word. This repetition in a subject so solemn is well calculated to awe every thoughtful hearer and ought to produce the most searching effect upon his conscience and heart. As we have pointed out in preceding articles, this section, verses 26 to 31, was introduced by the Apostle for the purpose of enforcing the exhortation found in verses 22 to 24, the sum of which is a call unto Christians to persevere in a state and practice of godliness. Grossly has this passage been perverted by theological factions belonging to two extremes. The one has misused it in the endeavor to bolster up their false doctrine of regenerated people falling from grace and being eternally lost. Without now going into that subject, it is sufficient to say that Hebrews 10, 26-31 contains not a word which directly supports the chief contention of the Armenians. What we have in this passage is only hypothetical. For if we sin willingly, i.e., deliberately, fully, and finally abandon the profession of Christianity, not that the Holy Spirit here says any of the regenerate Hebrews had or would do so, a similar and still more pointed case is found in those words of Christ's, Yet ye have not known him, but I know him, and if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. John 8.55 The second party of those who have misunderstood this passage are Calvinists, possessing more zeal than wisdom, anxious to maintain their ground against the Arminians. Most of them have devoted their energies to show that regenerated Christians do not come within the scope of verse 26 at all, that instead 
It treats only of nominal professors, of those having nothing more than a head knowledge of the truth, and making merely a lip profession of the same. And thus has the great enemy of souls succeeded in getting some of the true servants of God to blunt the sharp edge of this solemn verse and nullify its searching power over the conscience of the saints. It is sufficient refutation of this theory to point out that the Apostle is here addressing those who were partakers of the heavenly calling, chapter 3, verse 1, and in the we of chapter 10, verse 26, included himself. We will not take any notice of a third theory of modern dispensationalists who affirm that none but Jews could commit the sin here mentioned, beyond saying that our space is too valuable to waste in exposing such trifling with Holy Scripture. But what has been pointed out presents a serious difficulty to many. We may state it thus. If it be impossible for truly regenerated people to ever perish, then why should the Holy Spirit move the Apostle to so much as hypothetically describe their irremediable doom if they should apostatize? Such a difficulty is occasioned in the first place through a one-sided conception of the Christian, through considering him only as he exists in the purpose of God and not also remembering what he still is in himself unless the latter be steadily held in mind, we are in grave danger of denying or at least ignoring the Christian's responsibility. That the Christian is to be viewed in this twofold way is abundantly clear from many scriptures. For example, in the purpose of God, the Christian is already glorified, Romans 8.30, yet he certainly is not so in himself. Here in Hebrews 10.26 and so forth, as in many other passages, the Christian is not addressed from the viewpoint of God's eternal purpose, but as he yet is in himself, in need of solemn warnings as well as exhortations. Again, the difficulty which so many one-sided thinkers find in this subject is to be attributed to their failure in duly recognizing the relation which God has appointed between his own eternal counsels and the accomplishment of the same through wisely ordained means. There are some who reason most superficially that if God has ordained a certain soul to be saved, he will be, whether he exercised faith in Christ or no. Not so. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 clearly proves the contrary. The end and the means are there inseparably joined together. It is quite true that where God has appointed a certain individual unto salvation, he will infallibly give him a saving faith. But that does not mean that the Holy Spirit will believe for him. 
No, the individual will must exercise the faith which has been given him. In like manner, God has eternally decreed that every regenerated soul shall get safely through to heaven, yet he certainly has not ordained that any shall do so, whether or not they use the means which he has appointed for their preservation. Christians are kept by the power of God through faith. 1 Peter 1.5 There is the human responsibility side. Looked at as he still is in himself, the Christian is eminently liable to make shipwreck of the faith. 1 Timothy 1.19 He still has within him a nature which craves the vanities of the world, and that craving has to be denied, or he will never reach heaven. He is yet in the place of terrible danger, menaced by deadly temptations, and it is only as he constantly watches and prays against the same that he is preserved from them. He is the immediate and incessant object of the devil's malice, for he is ever going about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and it is only as the Christian takes unto himself, appropriates and uses the armor of God's providing that he can withstand the great enemy of souls. It is because of these things that he urgently needs the exhortations and warnings of Holy Writ. God has faithfully pointed out to us what lies at the end of every path of self-will and self-indulgence. God has mercifully placed a hedge across each precipice which confronts the professing Christian, and woe be to him if he disregards those warnings and pushes through that hedge. In this solemn passage of Hebrews 10, the Apostle is pointing out the sure and certain connection there is between apostasy and irrevocable damnation, thereby warning all who bear the name of Christ to take the most careful and constant pains in avoiding that unpardonable sin. To say that real Christians need no such warning because they cannot possibly commit that sin is, we repeat, to lose sight of the connection which God himself has established between his predestined ends and the means whereby they are reached. The end under which God has predestined his people is their eternal bliss in heaven and one of the means by which that end is reached is through their taking heed to the solemn warning he has given against that which would prevent their reaching heaven. It is not wisdom but madness to scoff at those warnings. As well might Joseph have objected that there was no need for him and his family to flee into Egypt, Matthew 2, seeing that it was impossible for the Christ child to be slain by Herod. What each of us needs to watch against is the first buddings of apostasy, 
the first steps which lead to that sin of sins. It is not reached at a single bound, but is the fatal culmination of a diseased heart. Thus, while the writer and the hearer may be in no immediate danger of apostasy itself, we are of that which, if allowed and continued in, would certainly lead to it. A man who is now enjoying good health is in no immediate danger of dying from tuberculosis. Yet if he recklessly exposed himself to the wet and cold, if he refrained from taking that nourishing food which supplies strength to resist disease, or had he a heavy cough on the chest and made no effort to break it up, then would he very likely fall a victim to consumption. So it is spiritually. Nay, in the case of the Christian, the seed of eternal death is already in him. That seed is sin, and it is only as grace is daily and diligently sought for the thwarting of its inclinations and suppressing of its activities that it is hindered from fully developing to a fatal end. A small leak neglected will sink a ship just as effectually as the most boisterous sea. So one sin indulged in and not repented of will terminate in eternal punishment. Well, did John Owen say, we ought to take heed of every neglect of the person of Christ and of his authority, lest we enter into some degree or other of the guilt of this great offense. Unquote. Or still better, well may both writer and hearer earnestly cry unto God, Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Psalm 19.13 Rightly did Spurgeon say on this verse, Secret sin is a stepping stone to presumptuous sin, and that is the vestibule of the sin which is unto death. Treasury of David To sin presumptuously is to knowingly and deliberately ignore God's commandments, defying His authority and recklessly going on in a course of self-pleasing regardless of consequences. When one has reached that terrible stage, he is but a short step indeed from committing the sin for which there is no forgiveness, and then to be abandoned by God both in this world and in that which is to come. As this solemn subject is so vitally related to our eternal welfare and as the pulpit and religious press of today maintain a guilty silence thereon, let us briefly point out some of the steps which inevitably lead to presumptuous sinning. When a professing Christian ceases to maintain a daily repentance and confession to God of all known sins, his conscience is already asleep and no longer responsive 
to the voice of the Holy Spirit. If over and above this he comes before God as a worshiper to praise and thank him for mercies received, he is but dissembling and mocking him. If he continues in a state of impenitence, thus allowing and siding with the sin into which at first he was unwittingly and unwillingly betrayed, his heart will be so hardened that he will commit new sins deliberately against light and knowledge, and that with a high hand, and thus be guilty of presumptuous sins, of openly defying God. The terrible thing is that in these degenerate times the consciences of thousands have been drugged by preachers whom it is greatly to be feared are themselves spiritually dead and helping forward the work of Satan, that have presented the eternal security of the saints in such an unscriptural way as to convey to their poor hearers the impression that, provided they once accepted Christ as their personal Savior, heaven is now their certain portion, that guilt can never more rest upon them, and that no matter what sins they may commit, nothing can possibly jeopardize their eternal interests. The consequence has been, and this is no imaginary fear of ours, but a patent fact of observation on every side, that a carnal security has been imparted so that in the midst of fleshly gratification and worldly living, it is, humanly speaking, quite impossible to disturb their false peace or terrify their conscience. All around us are professing Christians sinning with a high hand against God and yet suffering from no qualms of conscience. And why? Because while they believe that some millennial crown or reward may be forfeited should they fail to deny self and daily take up their cross and follow Christ, yet they have not the slightest realization or fear that they are hastening to hell as swiftly as time wings its flight. They fondly imagine that the blood of Christ covers all their sins, Horrible blasphemy. Dear hearer, make no mistake upon this point and suffer no false prophet to cause you to believe the contrary. The blood of Christ covers no sins that have not been truly repented of and confessed to God with a broken heart. But presumptuous sins are not easily repented of for they harden the heart and make it steel itself against God. In proof, note, but they refused to hearken and pulled away the shoulder and stopped their ears that they should not hear. Yea, they made their hearts as an adamant stone, lest they should hear the law and the words which the Lord of hosts hath sent. Zechariah 7, 11 and 12. Rightly then, 
Does Thomas Scott say on Hebrews 10.26, We cannot too awfully alarm the secure, self-confident, and presumptuous as every deliberate sin against light and conscience is a step toward the tremendous precipice described by the Apostle. Unquote. Alas, alas, Satan has, through the Bible teachers, done his work so well that unless the Holy Spirit performs a miracle, it is impossible to alarm such. The great masses of professing Christians of our day regard God himself much as they would an indulgent old man in his dotage who so loves his grandchildren as to be blind to all their faults. The ineffably holy God of Scripture is no longer believed in, but multitudes will yet find to their eternal sorrow that it is a fearful thing to fall into His hands. We make no apology for this lengthy introduction, for our aim is not so much to write a commentary on this epistle as it is to reach the consciences and hearts of poor, misguided, and deluded souls who have been fearfully deceived by the very men whom they have regarded as the champions of orthodoxy. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses, of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. Verses 28 and 29. Having named the principal means for the Christian's maintenance of constancy in the faith, verses 22 to 25, the apostle proceeded to enforce his exhortations to perseverance and against backsliding and apostasy by some weighty considerations. First, from the terrible character of the sin of apostasy. It is a sinning willingly after a knowledge of the truth has been received and assented to. Verse 26. Second, from the dreadful state of such no sacrifice avails for them, naught but judgment awaits them. Verses 26 and 27. Third, from the analogy of God's severity in the past. Verses 28 to 29. Fourth, from what Scripture affirms of God's vindictive justice. Verses 30 and 31. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. The apostle proceeds to confirm the sentence passed upon the apostate Christian in verses 26 and 27 by an appeal to God's awful but righteous justice in the past. If the despiser of the Mosaic law was dealt with so unsparingly, how much more severe must be the punishment meted out to those who scorn the authority of the gospel. 
The Greek word for despise means to utterly reject a thing, to set aside or cast it off, to treat it with contempt. The one who thus flouted the divine legislation through Moses was he who renounced its authority and determinately and obstinately refused to comply with its requirements. Such an one suffered the capital punishment, probably such passages as Deuteronomy 13, 6-9, 17, 2-7 were before the Apostle's mind. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? The Apostle's inspired logic here is the very reverse of that which obtains in the corrupt theology of present-day Christendom. The popular idea in these degenerate times is that under the gospel regime or dispensation of grace, God has acted, is acting, and will act much more mildly with transgressors than he did under the Mosaic economy. The very opposite is the truth. No judgment from heaven, one half as severe as that which overtook Jerusalem in A.D. 70, is recorded in Scripture from Exodus 19 to Malachi 4. Nor is there anything in God's dealings with Israel during Old Testament times which can begin to compare with the awful severity of His wrath as depicted in the book of Revelation. Every despiser of the Lordship of Christ shall yet discover that a far hotter place has been reserved for him in hell than what will be the portion of lawless rebels who lived under the old covenant. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, 
whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.